Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. We've all heard of the Del Mar Divide, a euphemism for the racial division in St. Louis. That division is evidenced in many ways, housing segregation and inequities being among the most prominent. That will be the subject of a conference at UMSA later this month, at which a new community for the sake of all report titled Segregated in St. Louis, Dismantling the Divide will be released. With me to discuss the issue, Jason Purnell, Associate Professor of Public Health at Washington University and Director of the For the Sake of All Study. Will Jordan is Executive Director for the Metropolitan St. Louis Equal Housing Opportunity Council. And joining us by phone is Richard Rothstein, Distinguished Fellow at the Economic Policy Institute and author of The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. He's the conference keynote speaker, and he joins us by phone from Berkeley, California. Thank you all so much for being with us. Great to have you. Thank, Thank you, Don. Well, let me begin with you. Uh, in a nutshell, can you describe the state of housing inequities in our town? Well, I think that um, on the 25th when we have our conference, it's going to be really important for people to see the history that's going to be laid out, not just in this report, but uh, by Richard Rothstein in The Color of Law. But for the most part, what we see is right now is that things are probably a little worse than they were in 1960 when it comes to the state of housing when you combine it with education and job opportunities in St. Louis. Um, and so that's unfortunate, especially when you look at health outcomes, maybe because we look at things more deeply now than we, we did before. But when you look at the health outcomes and then education and housing, uh, job opportunities, uh, it seems as though we've, the needle has moved back a little bit since 1960. So that's, that's one thing that's unfortunate. And um, I think that uh, even though, you know, the, the promise of fair housing is still out there with the law, what we have is kind of uh, somewhat of a political uh, decision to not see it as much of a crisis as it, as it is in our inner cities. And so that's one of the issues we're facing today, too. Uh, Jason, uh, and you're, for the sake of all study, health outcomes is one of the issues that you discussed. What are some of the other uh, impacts, if you will, of uh, the segregated housing and housing inequities? Well, segregation, uh, so much of our lives is determined by where we live. And when you think about uh, access to schools, uh, the ability to accumulate wealth, which we know has been a significant challenge for African-American families, uh, but also some of the uh, less tangible factors like uh, the social fabric in St. Louis and the ability to empathize and connect with people across uh, differences are among the impacts that we talk about in this report. Are we talking about pockets of uh, places in St. Louis or are we talking primarily about north of Del Mar? Well, well, basically, the, the the things that we emphasize are how people are living in those pockets. Mm -hmm. But the St. Louis region as a whole has a lot of opportunity. So we also kind of contrast that with the opportunities that are kind of prevented because of uh, some of the things that they'll be releasing in the report. So there's a lot of opportunity in the St. Louis area, but so many people are can just see it and not attain it. And that's one of the issues in St. Louis. Richard Rothstein, uh, this uh, situation is not unique to St. Louis. Many communities have the same kinds of issues. How did we get to this point? Well, we got to this point because government, particularly the federal government and state and, lo state and local governments as well, in St. Louis, but all, everywhere in the country, embarked on a racially explicit uh, campaign 
to ensure that African Americans would be concentrated in low-income downtown areas uh, initially, uh, and that white families would be given incentives to move to exclusive white suburbs uh, from which African Americans were excluded. We've uh, never dealt with this. It's a, a unconstitutional segregation that we have. Uh, in the 1960s, we abolished segregation in things like uh, water fountains and buses and uh, lunch counters. But we never dealt with this biggest unconstitutional segregation at all. Uh, of all, because we've adopted a myth, a national myth, that this all happened by accident, that it happened because uh, of private choices and private discrimination and people wanting to live with each other of the same race and maybe income differences. And because we think it all happened by accident, we think it has to unhappen by accident. But in reality, it's the government that explicitly uh, concentrated African Americans in African American neighborhoods and subsidized whites to move to exclusive white suburbs uh, that from which African Americans were excluded. This was a, a formal public policy. It was written in government manuals. We've forgotten this history, and unless we relearn it, we're not going to be able to address it. So doesn't the Fair Housing Act, 50 years old this month, have any impact at all on this? Well, it has a very, very tiny impact on it, because all the Fair Housing Act does is prohibit future discrimination. It doesn't undo the very powerful policies that the government put in place in the 20th century to lock people into segregated neighborhoods. Uh, let me give you one example. Uh, in the mid-20th century, the Federal Housing Administration in St. Louis and elsewhere uh, created uh, all-white suburbs uh, for working-class families. Uh, the developers of these suburbs were uh, required to pledge never to sell a home to an African-American. They required, were required to include a clause in the deed of every home, prohibiting the owner from reselling to an African-American or even renting to an African-American. Those homes were sold in the mid-20th century in today's dollars for about $100,000. Uh, today, they sell for, depending on the neighborhood and the region of the country, from two hundred to three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000. The white working-class families who moved into those homes, because of this federal racially explicit policy, uh, became middle class. They gained equity as the homes gained in value. Uh, the white families uh, who uh, began as working-class families and then moved into these homes used these hundreds of thousands of dollars in equity to send their children to college, to care for emergencies, and to bequeath it to their own children who uh, then had down payments for homes. African Americans who were prohibited from, uh, uh, by federal policy, prohibited explicitly from moving into these suburbs, uh, gained none of this equity. They rented uh, either in public housing or in the private market. The result is that today, while African-American incomes nationwide are about 60%, 60% of white incomes, African-American wealth is about 10% of white wealth. And that enormous disparity between a 60% income ratio and a 10% wealth ratio is entirely attributable to unconstitutional federal housing policy that was practiced in the mid-20th century. So simply passing a law as we did, and I don't minimize it, it's a, it was a step in the right direction uh, in 1968 saying the future housing discrimination uh, was prohibited, did nothing to address this enormous wealth gap that was created by past discrimination and that locks African Americans, uh, many African Americans, most African Americans, into continuing to rent, not having the money to, to, to purchase a home in what are now middle class suburbs. Uh, and uh, it locks white families into uh, the privilege that they were granted by the government. Uh, it's not their fault, it's just a government policy. Uh, 
that uh, puts them in a far superior station than African-Americans in St. Louis and everywhere. Jason Purnell, it sounds like, in, in spite of Shelley versus Kramer and the outlawing of restrictive covenants in, the, in this country back in the 40s, that they still exist somehow. Well, they, they literally exist. Uh, many of them yeah. are still written into the deeds uh, because it, it can be costly and, and time-consuming to remove them. But I think what's important to under, uh, underline about what Richard just said is, you know, to give this some St. Louis flavor, uh, Shelley versus Kramer does originate in St. Louis. Right Three of the justices had to recuse themselves from uh, deciding that case because they lived in neighborhoods with restrictive covenants. Yes. So the pervasiveness of this, I don't think people fully appreciate. But also, we can't just be looking at the 50 years since the, the Fair Housing Act as our time span. We're talking about over 100 years of housing policy. Absolutely. The 1916 mm-hmm. uh, racial zoning ordinance happens right here in St. Louis. I often tell audiences that I speak to that were innovators in segregation here in St. Louis. And that has had a lasting impact. It still structures the way that we live today. So, well, it's well entrenched, obviously, and has been for a long time. How do you dismantle something like that? Well, it starts by understanding, you know, there's a huge policy argument that, you know, the government should stay out of these types of things. But the problem is the government created the issue. And so uh, if the government's going to stay out, they have to first undo what was done that created such an incredible disadvantage. And that would take uh, quite a bit of energy and a lot of change. And so it's, the government's got a lot of work to do, to be honest with you, as far as policy is concerned, to reverse what has already happened. And so um, I, I think that's one of the issues that it starts where people have an understanding about the history because there's such an objection to uh, policies that favor one race over another. But the problem is so many things have happened to stack the deck against that race that if it's not undone, then it makes it seem as though um, that now we're stepping back and there's there's really no problem, but it's never been undone. And the and the and what the legacy is so overwhelmingly uh, negative that it even affects our health now. So that's something that really needs to be started. Is you got to understand the history. Richard Rothstein, has it been undone any place else? Can you cite places where this situation has been corrected? No, we've taken minor steps in some places uh, to. Uh, for the future, to uh, not only prevent future discrimination, but to take some minor steps to remedy it. But it hasn't really been undone. Uh, we have um, have some court cases, for example, which um, uh, were based on the fact that cities like St. Louis uh, explicitly put uh, segregated their public housing and put public housing for African-Americans in African-American neighborhoods and uh, for whites in white neighborhoods. Uh, at the time, in the 20th century, many whites lived in public housing, uh, not because they were poor, but because uh, there was no housing available. There was a housing shortage. And those, those court settlements, in some cases, have given um, residents of, of public housing, African-American residents of public housing, uh, vouchers so that they could move to high-opportunity neighborhoods where there were uh, jobs available and access to transportation and uh, uh, schools which had high achievement. So there are a few cases like that, uh, but mostly we've done nothing about it. And uh, I'm, I'm repeating myself now, but the reason we've done nothing about it is because we've adopted a national myth. We call it de facto segregation. Yes. And the Supreme Court has said if you have de facto segregation, segregation that just sort of happened by accident, there's nothing you can do about it. Hmm. Uh, only if it was government-created can we do something about it. Are we obligated as hmm. a constitutional democracy to do anything about it? 
But the Supreme Court has ignored this history, as of most of us who accept the de facto notion. So unfortunately, the answer is no. There's very little progress that's been made in desegregation. The Fair Housing Act made a small amount of progress, but uh, we need to redress uh, the past unconstitutional actions, not just the Clean Up Our Act going forward. Clearly, a lot of work ahead to try to rectify this situation. I have to take a break. We'll do that now. We're talking about housing inequities and segregation here in St. Louis and elsewhere. My guests in studio, Professor Jason Purnell of Washington University, Will Jordan of the Metropolitan St. Louis Equal Housing Opportunity Council, Richard Rothstein joins us by phone. He's with the Economic Policy Institute. Back in just a moment, this is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. And welcome back as we continue our conversation on housing inequities and segregation here in St. Louis and elsewhere. Will Jordan, let me come back to you. Uh, We talked off the air about the amount of time it's likely to take to really see some significant progress. What about today's national mood in terms of getting some of these things done that Richard and and Jason have been talking about? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, as we talked about, uh, you know, in in the past administration nationally, uh, we saw the biggest gains, uh, even with the court case that they had with the uh, uh, Texas case, uh, that I think Richard Rothstein probably had a great influence on the bench uh, with that decision, uh, and which was great uh, as far as preserving um, uh, a portion of the law that's really important for fair housing. But I tell you what, right now, uh, what I see that is happening is that there's this big national kind of trend towards um, kind of look at everything as it is right now. Everybody stop crying, America's great, and we all have the same opportunity. And so it's the, it's the failure to recognize how we got to where we're at. And it's, it's, that nationally is very difficult because everyone wants to forget the history, the negative history, but they want to really glorify the positive history. Jason, we talked earlier about the need for government to get involved. Um, I would suggest that maybe the government we have in place right now is not likely to move too quickly on this. Well, I think part of what what the, the calculus behind this report has been, and I want to emphasize that this is not just a for the sake of all report. Uh, we partnered with Empower Missouri, with EHOC, with Team TIF, with Arch City Defenders, Invest STL, and Ascend. Uh, to really put together a package of recommendations that amplifies the work that they're currently doing in St. Louis and looks at what we can do at the local level. And there are things that we can do at the local level. One of the things that we know uh, is that explicit racial exclusion has sort of fallen out of favor, is no longer fashionable, although our current moment uh, may give us some pause with, with respect to that. But what we found is that The way you exclude people is by not having affordable housing, Uh, zoning single-family large lots, for instance, uh, uh, explicitly uh, prohibiting multifamily dwellings Mm -hmm. in a particular area Mm -hmm. so that uh, you don't have to say African-Americans may not apply. uh, But because of what we know about the demographics of St. Louis, that's going to effectively exclude people. Uh, So we, we look at things like 
the Affordable Housing Trust Fund in the city of St. Louis fully funding that and uh, creating one uh, in St. Louis County, county, looking at the ways that we do development in St. Louis to make sure that there are community benefit agreements attached to some of these tax increment financing deals and and tax abatement deals. Uh, But also at the level of the individual resident, uh, you know, people will show up and be very vocal about their opposition to the development of affordable housing. We need that counterexample. We need residents who are uh, perhaps newly aware of this history uh, and the ways in which their municipalities and their towns uh, were structured uh, to show up at those meetings with equal voice and say, we, we have a different vision of what St. Louis can be and what it should look like. And we intend to also uh, be quite vocal in uh, enhancing and, and amplifying that vision. Richard Rothstein, w- would you be optimistic that there might be such an awakening with all of the entrenched uh, rules and regulations that we have in place now? Not rules and regulations, but practices. Well, I'm sort of a partially optimistic. Uh, you're absolutely right that uh, the, the biggest bar to this is exclusionary zoning ordinances in which middle class, predominantly white, and sometimes all white suburbs, have adopted rules that prevent the, the construction of affordable housing uh, for moderate income families as well as uh, low income families. I think in light of the history that I described to you, we should consider those zoning ordinances a violation of the Constitution since they were designed to lock in place a unconstitutional segregation that was created by the government. But I'm encouraged because uh, uh, there are uh, awakenings now uh, nationally about these issues in some cities. I don't actually know if it's true in St. Louis, and I should find out. There are groups that have called themselves Yimbies. Mm, in opposition yeah. to the NIMBYs, not in my backyard, there are groups call themselves Yimbies, yes, in my backyard, which are engaging in exactly the kind of uh, activity that you're talking about, advocating for uh, desegregation. We also, as a result uh, of the tragic events in, in Ferguson, um, now have a Black Lives Matter movement, which is elevating the conversation about race in this country. Um, we have uh, a movement across the the South and in border states uh, to remove statues that uh, were set up to commemorate the slavery and defenders of slavery. So despite the fact that the the national administration is moving us backwards and uh, even encouraging a a racist sentiment, there is on the ground uh, an awakening about the the tragedy of the legacies of slavery and Jim Crow in housing and elsewhere. And I expect it to build, and I, I yeah. am somewhat encouraged by the, the, that development. I am, too. Uh, I, I think that right now the report that Jason and uh, this consortium has put together can help to elevate the information to start a Yimby movement here. And I, I think that's going to be one of our greatest hopes at this point in time is getting people on board with the counter movement. And I think that the information in this report is so eye-opening. For example, seeing as as great a city as we have in St. Louis, when you look at some of the areas that uh, on, on these maps that you'll see, they're really eye-opening because you have these areas that have the highest restrictions restrictions in what, how, what the lot size has to be, how big the house, single-family only. And those that have the greatest uh, uh, educational opportunities for public school are those same ones. And and when you look at the ones that have much uh, uh, less restrictive, 
but those are the same uh, neighborhoods that have the highest uh, level of nuisance ordinances. So you have these affordable opportunities in some of these other places, but they have this highest level of nuisance ordinances, and they also have the poor school districts, and it's just, it's a fight. There's like this battle line, and then you, you'll see in some of the red areas where they have the, the greatest restrictions are the greatest places to live. What do you mean by nuisance ordinances? So these nuisance ordinances have cropped up all over the country, and then we see them a lot now here in places like Maplewood and uh, in Florissant. Uh, we're seeing them in St. John. We see them uh, in other areas of the city where uh, someone makes a phone call and maybe they're being abused by one of their uh, their spouse or their significant other. So they call the police to save the lives of themselves or maybe their children. But then yet the landlord evicts them because they made a phone call to the police. And there's this little program they have that will send a text message to landlords if any if your property is ever involved in a 911 call. That's real. And that's happening. So they get the text message. They say, oh, there's a problem at my property. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to go ahead and get rid of them. And the, the nuisance ordinance is a policy that says that, hey, if you don't get rid of them, we're going to make you get rid of them because you only can have two of those calls. And that's horrible for you to try to protect your own life from something that's happening. And then you actually get to evict. And then can't come back for maybe six months. So you're out of the school district and you're without hope. So that's horrible. And we see those popping up everywhere. I want to go back to the Yimby issue for just a moment because we have a caller from Benton Park. Richard is going to join us now. He apparently is a part of this whole program. So go ahead, Richard. You're on the air. Hi. Um, I would like your um, uh, interviewees to uh, address the um some of the local policies that uh, are not federal and not governmental. Uh, I live, I've lived in the city all my life. Um, I still live in the city. We, I live in a mixed neighborhood right near Soulard. And I don't know anybody. I assume everybody's got their racial prejudices. I do too. Everybody does. But I don't know anybody that puts that at the top of their list. At the top of their list... They're thinking about, is this person going to be a good neighbor? That means are they going to be quiet? Are they going to be clean? Are they going to be, uh, you know, go down the list? And uh, we live in a mixed neighborhood right here. Yeah. Richard, thanks. Uh, Jason, do you want to respond and react to that? I do. I think one of the, the chief contributions of Richard Rothstein's book, The Color of Law, is disabusing us of this notion that it's just personal prejudice that has uh, landed us in this situation. Uh, these are structural issues uh, that were set in motion decades ago. And even if people don't perceive themselves to be influenced by them, their choices are constrained in yes. important ways mm-hmm. by these uh, laws, policies, and not just – it is not uh, – it, it, it does go beyond government. Uh, the handbook for realtors, uh, the code of ethics – said that you shouldn't sell homes to African Americans. I mean, it, it went that deep into uh, our society. And uh, wherever you live in the St. Louis region, you are still being impacted by that. Right. Richard Rothstein, is this a situation that exists um, in more in some parts of the country than in others? I understand it's a national problem, but uh, is it better in some places than others? No, I don't really think it is. Uh, the, uh, you know, for example, uh, uh, in St. Louis uh, in the 1930s, 
there were integrated neighborhoods near uh, downtown St. Louis. All cities had integrated neighborhoods at that time simply because workers didn't have automobiles and had to be able to walk to work, and most jobs were in downtown areas. So in St. Louis, the federal government demolished uh, an integrated neighborhood. It built uh, an all-black project for... um, in, uh, called the Soto Car uh, in uh, the downtown area, and uh, created an all-white project uh, south of downtown, the Clinton Peabody Project, uh, creating segregation where it hadn't previously existed. But that's not because St. Louis was a border state. Uh, in a border state, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, a so-called liberal area, uh, the area around the Massachusetts Institute of Technology was also an integrated neighborhood where the government demolished housing and built two separate projects, one for blacks, one for whites, creating a pattern of segregation where it hadn't previously existed. So this went on everywhere in the country. Uh, it went on in the South. It went on in the North. It went on in the Midwest and in the West. Everywhere the government created a pattern of segregation that we would not have today if it were not for these federal policies that have never been remedied. Jason, I'll come back to you if I can uh, on this event that's taking place next week at UMSL. Um, who, who's invited and what do you hope to come of it aside from perhaps just an educational uh, opportunity? So uh, I believe and, and we're, we're happy for our partners at EHOC that it, it is sold out. Um, Absolutely sold out. Uh, so we've gotten a tremendous uh, – interest in this, uh, but it's a, it's a cross-section of the community. Uh, it's people who are interested in learning about these issues and finding out what they can do, but it includes folks from banking and real estate and uh, folks who, who have expertise in housing, but also uh, just lay people who want to learn more. I think I don't want to uh, underestimate the power of that education. Uh, it's not simply that people have ignored this history. A lot of people don't know this history. That's right. Um, I never learned any of this in any (laughs) textbook uh, from grade school all the way through college. Um, So I I believe that that that's going to be a crucial part of it. But there also will be calls to action that are are tied to the recommendations in this report. About those recommendations, uh, you've you've, uh, uh, given us some of them. What what are some of the others that haven't been mentioned? I've got here eviction prevention as being one of them. It oh, sounds yes. like a it sounds like one that uh, is probably very meaningful. Mm-hmm. It is very meaningful. It's one of those that our partners at Arch City Defenders were particularly uh, interested in, in terms of not just um, uh, preventing eviction as a legal matter, but also providing supports for people so that uh, in the event that they are evicted, they know what their legal rights are. Uh, they know what available resources uh, there are and and that we uh, really deal with and address this notion of illegally locking people out of their homes without some notice. Well, what else do you see among that list of recommendations that stands out? Um, I think uh, the real big thing is uh, having an affordable housing commission for the county, uh, even having protections for uh, income uh, as far as the way you pay your rent, are you know making certain that uh, you can use whatever income you get and having that kind of source of income protection in the county. So many things. I mean, it'd be great if it was statewide, but certainly in the county would be uh, much more beneficial than just having it in the city. And we definitely have it in the city, but we would love to have it in the county. Uh, one of you two gentlemen has mentioned an affordable trust fund. Where where does the money come to <laughs> to uh, put in that fund? 
Right, yeah. right. Well, so in the city, that's come from a sales tax, you know, uh-huh. a percentage increase, and um, I, I'm I'm certain that that could be mirrored in the county on some level, uh, because it's a very small percentage, but it ends up being a lot of money that can really help to create more affordable housing opportunities. What kind of money is in the fund right now? Oh, I think that typically we're we're working with well, so so there's a, the amount of money that's in the fund, and there's the amount of money that the city actually gets to use. Mm-hmm. So I I think they're they're that you know, it's say maybe seven million that they actually get to use, but maybe it might be more like eleven to fifteen that's actually in the fund. So you know, there's a there's quite a bit of money that's built up. Any of those other recommendations, Jason, that you would mention that we haven't uh, discussed? One of them is called a greenlining fund, and Will will know more about the ins and outs of this. But what's attractive to me about that is the notion of reversing the practice of redlining. And for people who don't know that, these were maps that were drawn. Uh, to show that uh, particularly African-American neighborhoods were too high risk to uh, provide mortgages to people. Right. Uh, and the Greenlining Fund would essentially reverse that. And what we, what we show in the report, uh, this was an analysis done by someone else, the areas that were redlined back in the 1930s, there are still hardly any mortgages being written in yeah. those areas. That's right. Exactly right. And uh, the greenlining fund would be, you know, say a, a combination of some private funds, some government funds, help to leverage, uh, say, a banking, a mortgage in an area that traditionally would not be eligible because of the way that it, the houses are appraised, and to go above the appraised value to be able to give value to uh, people wanting to move into that to encourage it. So, you know, that's that's a start, and greenlining fund would be great. What's the main message, uh, Richard Rothstein, that uh, that you're going to be bringing to St. Louis next week? Well, I'm going to be talking about this history, about our constitutional obligation to remedy it. Uh, and the, by the way, uh, the, the event in the morning, as you've said, has been sold out, but I'm going to be speaking again in the evening next Wednesday at the Julia Davis Public Library uh, on Natural Bridge Avenue at 530. And uh, I'll be trying to acquaint people with uh, our constitutional obligations to remedy uh, segregation in the same way residentially that we did in much less important areas uh, uh, in, the, in the 1960s. Racial segregation of neighborhoods underlies, as we saw in Ferguson, the most serious social problems we face in this country. And unless we address that, um, much of the civil rights victories that we won in the 20th century uh, will go not completely fulfilled. Jason, you had another point you wanted to make. Just wanted to let people know that they can access the report on our website, for the sake of all.org after the April 25th event. Okay. Well, uh, we'll certainly make that available to our listeners when it is, in fact, available. I want to thank you all so much for being with us. The, I hear the drum beat now. You're talking about educating people and beating some drums next week. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank uh, you. Professor Jason Purnell, great thank to you. see you again. Will Jordan. Wonderful to see you. You too, Don. And Richard Rothstein, we'll welcome you to St. Louis next week. Thank you for being with us on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU.